Please continue standing with me as we now hear the reading of God's, uh, the New Testament reading. And uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 15. A bit of a typo there in your uh, bulletin. It's not Romans 5, but Romans 15 that we will be considering today. <clears throat> and I'd like to consider verses 8 through 13 in the sermon. But just for context, we'll begin reading in verse 1. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word, Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the, all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon his word. Well, beloved Lord, uh, anyone who has any uh, surf, uh, surface knowledge of the book of Romans, you know that the book of Romans falls into three main sections. That first section where Paul uh, sets out to prove universal human depravity and guilt before a holy God of wrath. And then that second section that he begins in, in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, But now the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law the righteousness of faith available by Christ. And for the bulk of his letter, he sets out to explain and to defend the gospel that he had been preaching for the better part of 25 years. And that brings brings you all the way up to the end of chapter 11, where in chapter 12, he begins the last main section of his book, where he appeals to his readers to live a life that is consistent with what God has done for them in Christ Jesus He beseeches us to offer up our lives, our bodies, as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable to him. He tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And then he goes on to describe and unpack what it looks like for us to offer up our lives as living sacrifices as he applies it to the issue that was dividing the early church at that time, the division between Jewish Christians who still held to the ceremonial aspects of the law 
and Gentile believers who knew that they were freed from that yoke of the law, and they were free to eat whatever, and and, uh, they had more Christian liberty. He tells the strong to welcome the weak in faith, but not to quarrel over opinions, but to build one another up. Now, this may mean for them to forego certain Christian liberties and to die to self, but that's okay because the Apostle Paul reminds us that Christ did not come to please himself. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if Christ did that for us, Paul says we should be willing to do this for others. So it's important to note that even in this section where the Apostle Paul is appealing to us to live lives of gratitude, he constantly brings us back and reminds us of what Christ has done for us, thus setting an example for us to follow in his footsteps. And that's precisely what he does in verse 8 of chapter 15 when he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant. He has become a servant, highlighting the fact that Christ did not come to please himself, but to suffer and to die for his people. He now explains in a bit more detail what it meant for the Son of Man to take on the form of a servant, to be obedient even to the point of death on the cross, and precisely what that accomplished both for the Jews as well as for the Gentiles. And here we see the Apostle Paul circling back to what he said in the very beginning of his letter, a a, a point, a theme that he he has been developing throughout this letter. And it, it is this, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, but it's to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. That is, while both Jew and Gentile enjoy uh, uh, equal status before the Lord, they, uh, uh, everyone who believes uh, is accepted, uh, by, uh, accepted by God in Christ Jesus, while that is true, Paul has consistently maintained that the Jew maintains a certain advantage, a historical priority. It is to them that the, that the gospel was given first. It is to them that belongs the covenants, the promises, the glory, the adoption. And as Paul has maintained this distinction of equality by faith, but a a certain historical uh, salvation historical priorities of the Jews, there's been a two-way application that he's been able to give. First, he could say to his Gentile readers, as he did back in chapter 11, using the analogy of the olive tree, and the fact that these we as Gentiles are wild branches grafted into the tree, he could say to them, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. And so while maintaining this historical priority of the Jews, he could say to his Gentile audience, don't get cocky, don't get a big head. It's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. But Paul also feels it necessary to defend his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, lest he be viewed as a traitor to his people. He wanted to be able to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles in order to make his fellow Jews jealous 
so that they too may come to faith in Christ and be saved. Indeed, as he will say later in this chapter, he has reason to be proud of his work for God in Christ Jesus amongst the Gentiles. But you'll notice as Paul reminds us what Jesus did when he came in his earthly ministry, not coming as a conquering king, but coming as a humble servant. Notice Paul says that he came as a servant to the circumcised. You know from reading the Gospels that uh, the vast majority of Jesus' earthly ministry was conducted amongst his fellow Jews. His interactions with Gentiles were relatively rare. Jesus said in Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus' ministry was conducted primarily to his fellow Jews. And he did this, Paul says, in order to show God's truthfulness. The purpose of this service was to highlight the truthfulness of God as it was contained in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus came to show God's truthfulness by fulfilling the promises he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says he came to confirm those promises. The word translated there, confirm, is a legal term. Speaking of legal validation, making it official. And so while God promised to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world, Christ actually had to come in time. And in space, in history, in the fullness of time to accomplish those promises, to make them legally binding, to show that God cannot lie and that all of his promises find their yes and their amen in Christ. And so that's the first thing that Jesus did in coming a servant, in in coming in the form of a servant, serving his fellow Jews to show and to confirm in a legal sense those promises of God in the Old Testament. But he had something much bigger in mind as well, as Paul says in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, Christ's mercy amongst his fellow Jews had a much broader target in mind. He could say, as he did in John 10, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that I'm going to gather, and they're going to be one flock with one shepherd over them. So that's why after his resurrection, he commanded his apostles to go, not just to the Jews, but to all nations, making disciples. And if Christ came as a servant to the circumcised, uh, fulfilling the promises to the patriarchs demonstrates God's truthfulness. This ministry uh, extending out to the Gentiles now demonstrates God's mercy. These two attributes of God, his truthfulness and his mercy, are demonstrated in the service of Christ. Paul highlighted the mercy of God given to both Jew and Gentile at the end of of Romans chapter 11 when he says to his Gentile audience, for just as you at one time, just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now Receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now, boys and girls, mercy is defined as not getting what you deserve. If your parents tell you to clean your room, and if you clean your room that they will give you an ice cream sundae, but you don't clean your room, what do you deserve? Well, you don't deserve that ice cream sundae because you were disobedient. Maybe you you deserve some form of punishment because you didn't obey your parents. But what if after disobeying your parents, not cleaning your room, your parents came and said, you know what, instead of punishing you, I'm going to give you that ice cream sundae. That's mercy. And that's grace. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Not giving us what we deserve is wrath. But rather he gives his mercy and his grace to disobedient, undeserving sinners such as us. And he does this so that he gets the glory. Rather than rewarding us for our righteous deeds... He he gives his grace to sinners so that it can all be to the praise of his glorious grace. So notice there that it is uh, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God shows us, gives us what we don't deserve, his grace. It just causes our hearts to well up in praise to him. As Paul has consistently done throughout this letter to the Romans, Paul makes his assertions, but then he backs it up. Uh, by appealing to the law and to the prophets. He backs it up by quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, just as he does in our passage today, in order to show that this ministry of Christ, this service that Christ rendered to the circumcised with an extension to the Gentiles, was not an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B that God had to scramble to, uh, to put in place. No, it was something that was predicted from long ago. And so Paul here uh, gives us uh, four Old Testament quotations, uh, two from the Psalms, one from the book of Deuteronomy, and one from the prophet Isaiah, in order to prove that this was God's plan all along, that the gospel would go to the Gentiles and that Jesus, the Messiah, would be king over Jew and Gentile as well. And so the first quote that we have here in verse 9, which says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, comes from Psalm 18. This rather lengthy psalm, we are told in the superscription, was written by David on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Previously in the psalm, David said, To the Lord, you delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Here as David recounts his gaining dominion as he first ascended uh, over the tribe of Judah and then over all of Israel and then began to conquer the surrounding nations and having those nations that he did not know come to him and, and, and pay homage to him, he gives praise to God of his gaining power over the surrounding nations. But then in, in the verse that Paul quotes for our passage today, David pictures himself offering praise to God, not over the nations, but among the nations. 
So he pictures these nations that he's gaining dominion and rule over, not in order to conquer them, but in order to welcome them, not as enemies, but as friends. Literally as part of the choir. He's singing praise amongst these nations to his God. But since this psalm, Psalm 18, finds its fulfillment not in David, but in Christ Jesus, Paul, like all of the New Testament authors, sees these words from Psalm 18, not as the words of David, but now as the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus as the speaker here, saying, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's why it's so important for us to sing the Psalms, because the Psalms are the songs of Jesus. And when we sing the Psalms, we are singing together with our risen Lord. He's our worship leader. And we are those Gentiles, many of us, those Gentiles, joining our voices together with him in praise of our God. The next quote he gives us in verse 10 is still Jesus speaking. And that's why I think the ESV has done us a disservice when it says, again, it is said. I think it should be better translated. Again, he says, namely, Jesus is still speaking here when he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, the so-called Song of Moses, the song that Moses sang to the second generation of Israelites as they are about to enter in and take possession of the land of promise. He gives them his swan song. And in this song, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now this is a bit striking because just before in Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses, Moses was talking about how God was bring, would bring vengeance upon his enemies, how he would destroy those hostile nations against the people of God. And yet Moses turns right around and tells those nations, those Gentiles, the Goyim, to sing praises together with the people of God. Again, seeing this song's fulfillment in Christ Jesus, we realize that even when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. God's vengeance was poured out on him so that we as his enemies might become his friends. So that we might join the choir in praise to God. So that God may be just in punishing Jesus and in inflicting his wrath upon him, but also the justifier of the one who has faith. In Christ Jesus. So that's why Moses can talk about God's wrath upon the sinful nations, but then turn right around and tell those nations to praise God with his people, because Jesus has brought us near and reconciled us to God. Third quote we have in verse 11 when he says again, again, this is Jesus speaking, when he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Here he's quoting from our Old Testament reading, Psalm 117, the shortest of all the psalms in the Psalter. But here we see that the nations are invited to bring praise to God. And you may recall that the only other verse in that psalm gives the reason why the nations ought to praise God, namely because his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness endures forever. His steadfast love, often translated Uh, His mercy and his faithfulness having to do with his truthfulness. The fact that God cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. Remember those two attributes that Paul was talking about. God's truthfulness and his faithfulness. Again, being the reason. 
why the Gentiles should bring praise to God. But the fact that they are invited means that they are able to do so because of the work of Christ. The final quotation is no longer Jesus speaking. Paul makes it clear. It's actually Isaiah who's saying these words. But notice he's saying these words about Jesus, whom he terms the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. This portion of the the book of Isaiah, just before this prophecy of the root of Jesse that would come, talked about God's impending wrath and doom and destruction that would come upon Israel and upon the house of Judah, and specifically upon the house of David, likening God's wrath to the axe that is laid at the root where God is going to chop down all of the trees and leave nothing but a stump. And yet Isaiah can turn right around in Isaiah 11.1 where he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here he looks forward to the day in which the house of David, that kingly line, will be revived. And of course that, that revival of the house of David took place at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And notice here, Isaiah predicts that this son of David, the root of Jesse, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will arise, not just to rule over Israel, but what? To rule over The Gentiles. You'll notice that Paul began this section by telling us that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, but he ends it by saying he will rise to rule. Jesus serves in order to rule, and he rules in order to serve. This is the character of Jesus' lordship. He serves us by ruling us and rules us by serving us. And this rule over the Gentiles offers hope. Look there, Isaiah says, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul speaks of this hope that is given to us as Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2 when he writes, "Remember, Therefore remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at that time... We're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who we are by nature. Children of wrath, alienated from God, without hope in this world, and yet Jesus came as a servant. He died and lived again. So that he can rule over us. And that rule offers us hope. As Paul did at the end of the previous section, so also here in verse 13, the Apostle Paul offers a prayer for his readers. That the benefits of the gospel might be abundantly realized among them, both Jew and Gentile. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Previously, he spoke of how God uses things like endurance 
patience in the face of suffering, and the encouragement of the scriptures to produce in us hope. Now Paul prays to the God of hope that he might produce in us joy and peace in believing. So endurance produces hope, and hope produces joy and uh, joy and peace. Let me just say a couple things about those two words briefly. First of all, joy. Joy is much more than happiness. If you go to Disneyland and you walk through those gates after you stand in line, and you walk through those gates, you see it says the happiest place on earth. And you may have a big smile on your face, and you may be really happy that you finally got through those gates at Disneyland until you realize that the lines are two hours long and your favorite ride is, is broken down and that, you know, dinner's gonna cost you $500. Happiness comes and goes. Joy remains. Joy is much more than happiness. The opposite of joy isn't sorrow. The opposite of joy is despair. And the reason why we can rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings is because we have a hope that will not put us to shame. We have a hope that does not disappoint. See, we use that word hope sometimes in the sense of things that we would like to happen but probably won't. I hope the Padres win the World Series. I hope. Probably not going to happen. It's wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not that. Biblical hope speaks of things that most certainly will happen, but have not happened yet. Namely, the resurrection of the body, and the redemption of our bodies, and the the new heavens and new earth. That's our hope. We know for sure it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. Secondly, peace. Peace both can refer to the peace we have with God, that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 5. Having been justified by, by faith, we have peace with God. We are now reconciled to him, having been his enemies. But peace can also refer to the peace we have from God, which is what Paul has in mind here. This is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of uh, tribulation and the con- uh, conflict and persecution, we have peace. We have that, that inner peace with God, uh, from God because we have peace with God. And of course, the only way we can experience these traits of joy or peace is through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's why he says, uh, peace in believing, so about the, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may, ha- you, uh, you may abound in hope. You'll notice here the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Speaking of how Jesus came as a servant to reconcile us to the Father, and then God, and then Paul prays to the Father, the God of hope, to fill us with joy and peace and believing through the power of the Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are actively at work in saving us from beginning to end. So as we see in our passage, Jesus came to serve. In order to rule. And he rules in order to serve. Jesus did not come to please himself. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as a servant to confirm the promises of God so that they all find their yes and their amen in him. And that service, that ministry continues to this day as the word of God continues to go forth. 
Jesus goes near and far to preach peace. Peace to those who are near and to those who are far away so that he may gather his people to himself under his gracious reign, which offers to us hope. And he does this in order to save us, in order to rule over us, but also, as Peter tells us, to set an example so that we might follow in his footsteps. So be reminded of what Jesus did for you. In order to be your Lord, he became your servant even to the point of death on the cross. That should fill our hearts with gratitude, and that should motivate us to then take up our cross, to offer up our bodies daily as a sacrifice to God, as we love and serve one another. Because if Jesus if Jesus sacrificed for you, he calls you to sacrifice for others. May God, by his Spirit, enable us to do that daily. May he fill us with faith, hope, and love, so that with one mind and one voice we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks.